You did it. I'm sure all of you are here for all 65. I'm sure, I have no doubt everybody in this room was in full attendance since December 2021. Never missed a Sunday, never got sick, never woke up and said, looks kind of rainy outside. Uh, I'm, everybody here is perfect, and I'm grateful for that. We're finishing, John. I was saying, I, I, I saw immediately, I said, Patrick holds the mic like a Pine Cove staffer because they train you in Pine Cove to put that mic right to the chin. A lot of people hold it down here, which is a terrible place to hold a mic. So if you're ever a reader, just know it should touch the bottom of your chin and you're good. I, was, I said to Shane, I was like, that is a Pine Cove mic hold placement classic. Uh, and it's the right way to hold it, too. That way you don't, the sound guy's not like, oh, gosh, and it's all feedback. So way to go, way to read, as a Pine Cove style. Matt was like, he doesn't even know he's doing that, does he? I was like, nope, nope, he does not. Um, so we're getting to the end. It's a great passage, but I want to start by uh, taking a moment to talk to the men in the room. Uh, there are many failures that have existed in us in many different ways, some of them in the past and some of them current, but all a reflection of the ways that we have not measured up. If I could um, boil it down to a bulleted list of like 10, you could just say, and it's not even hard, what are there, like 20 of us, 30 of us in the room? Uh, fits of anger, men who've gotten angry disproportionately toward their kids, toward their spouse, towards their coworkers, towards their friends, and you just go, I don't know what happened. Uh, financial uh, mismanagement, overindulgence in alcohol, pornography addiction, exasperation of children and neglect of our families, just a lack of concern for their well-being and an abdication of leadership responsibilities in the home. Deceit not wanting to show that we're not as good as we actually would love people to think that we are. Laziness in our work, laziness in our church life, a lack of leadership even in church and family life, having no real concern for it and just hoping somebody else will pick up the slack that we are ourselves creating and enjoying a bit of our laziness in our work and in our service and in our community and hoping somebody else, yeah, just engages with it. That's there. A lack of zeal for the Lord where mom or friends have to drag you to church because you're disinterested and you don't want to pray with your family, you don't want to pray with your church family, you have no interest really in care, demonstrating it, being it, being an example in the church, but just hoping that somebody will give you a leadership role because you have money or you have some level of community responsibility and that's just not how it works um, because who you are in the home is going to be who you are in public, it's just a matter of time. Disengagement from fellowship and the pride of our lives that thinks that we can handle life in our own strength. That list took me about 45 seconds to make when I was working on this sermon. And all of them have uh, tangible expressions in our fellowship. Tangible expressions in our fellowship of unloving, uncaring, uncooperative, disengaged leadership with a whole lot of arrogance around it. Tied up with a, a bow of arrogance as if our ways are the best ways, our convictions are the best convictions, our heart is the best heart, our approach is the best approach. This is all of us. It doesn't even matter who I'm talking about. It just matters that this is us. This is an aggregate picture of even the men at our church. 
very nice, happy, smiling, we'll greet you on a Sunday morning, uh, lazy, sloppy, disengaged. And it's the habit of many men, is it not? This is the curse of Genesis 3, is that we just want to kind of be hands off. We would like other people to do it. But a rightly ordered church family and a rightly ordered life and even a rightly ordered community has you men as a part of the benevolent, kind, gracious, godly leadership of it. And there is this common phrase, well, you don't know what I've done, or you don't know how bad it has been. I don't know how bad you actually are. You don't know how bad I actually am. That's not really even the point, uh, because it's not about comparing sins. We've talked before, you you have like the youth pastor guy or the speaker. He'll go, man, if your sins were broadcast for the whole world to see, how embarrassed would you be? I'm like, well, praise the Lord, they're not, because I don't want that, and you don't want that. I don't want that for you. I don't want to know everything you've done. You don't want to know everything I've done. The Lord knows it, and that's plenty. But even the things we do know about one another don't paint the most sincere, loving, gracious picture of what we would like to be in the Lord. And yet, the heart of Jesus is to restore. That's the great thing. The heart of Jesus is to restore us into fellowship, into service. Very often, and this is for Everybody in the room, men, women, children, very often we do not feel worthy enough, just in life in general, but even like kids' classrooms. I go, you know, like, I don't know enough to teach. I tell, I tell you the truth. This is not like the way Jesus says it. Like, like, my kids know more about Scripture than I did when I was 20. They're 13, 11, and 9. Like, I, like they, they laugh. I'm like, I don't know what that Bible verse that is. I don't know where that, I, what are you talking about? They're like, well, do you know, Dad, in this verse or in this this thing, or what about this, or what about that? And like, I, I, this week I was sitting, my, my oldest had missed a couple of days of school two weeks ago, and we had to sit, and he just likes parental proximity. And so he just, like, he just wants somebody to be beside him while he's doing his work. You don't have to say anything. Um, and, when you, he, and he's a driven kid. He really wants to get his work done. He hates doing things late. So he was up until midnight sometime last week trying to catch up on his school, or maybe it was this week, golly, it's a Sunday, so yeah, sometime in the past school week, and he's like, will you just sit with me, will you just sit, and I'm like, all right, dude, and like, like, I was like, you got to shut this down, man, like, just deal with it, you'll be fine, he's like, no, I'm going to finish, so like 10 turns to 11, 11 turns, I was, I was like, I'm going to bed, I gotta go, like, I'm, I'm getting tired, and you usually can't out awake me, but he's asking all these hermeneutics questions, he's like, what is a a theological principle that comes from Acts chapter 10. I'm like, dude, Acts chapter 10 is one of my favorite. I love Acts chapter 10. It's one of like the key passages of Scripture in my life. I love it. I love it. I love it. I don't know. How does your teacher define what a theological principle is? I'm like, I mean, this is the guy who teaches a class in the spring called Pastoral Theology and Leadership. And I'm like, well, how does your seventh grade hermeneutics teacher define that? I just need to know. Like, what does he need? Um, He's like this. He's like, and what about an application? I'm like, I don't know, dude. What's an application? Like, be nice to people. That's kind of every application, isn't it? Love Jesus more. So we work, we work through it, though, and I just tell my kids, I don't, I, don't have, I don't have what you have. I don't have the mind that you have. I don't have your tender heart. You guys are awesome. But you can feel overwhelmed, and that doesn't really matter because Jesus' heart is to restore. You feel like you don't bring a lot to the table, and you don't. But what God has put in you is a ton in and of yourself, you bring nothing of value to the table, but because you are one who is created in God's image and in Christ, endowed with that spirit, and given a commission 
The Lord doesn't give that to people if he doesn't anticipate or expect them to do it. It's not like there's this group of haves and have-not Christians, and the have-nots go, well, you don't know what I've done, and the haves go, oh, I'm pretty good as is. So I'm really glad God has chosen to use me because he really kind of needs me on his team. It's interesting to me that the end of John 21, 15 through 25, we just heard it read, and really the whole thing, that Jesus having breakfast with his disciples. If you had breakfast for dinner this past week, great, we did. Uh, and we talked about it. We had the conversations on, you know, how has God provided for us? And it was, my kids were trying, like, even my oldest was like, I want to share one. I know it says two to three, but like, I, I, I have one. And they're just sharing all kinds of weirdo stuff, right? Because it's like, well, going to see Mimi at this thing or being able to have this conversation or being able to change out this car or doing this or what, this opportunity or that opportunity. And they just start sharing cool ways God's cared for us. So we had our breakfast for dinner, and we're still in the breakfast theme, and we're still at the beach with Jesus. And at the last portion of the Gospel of John, we have Jesus talking to Peter. And, and what I would imagine is happening is they're kind of having this walk along the beach, and John is kind of behind them listening to what's going on. And I think that for two reasons. One is because he talks about it here in the Gospel. And secondly is because if he is the disciple whom Jesus loved, then Peter turns around and is like, hey, what about this guy? And he turns around and talks to him. So, so then John has to kind of add this in. So the end of the gospel of John is crazy because like Matthew ends with a great commission and John ends with a restoration. Mark ends with fear of the resurrection. Like, like, oh my, and there was great fear. But we have John ending with the restoration. Now, in this, and I, I could go forever for it. Let me figure out, you know, I got all these sheets, all these things I want to say. Let's figure out where we're going to go that doesn't, you know, mean you're going to be here till 2 p.m. I want to talk about restoration, and then I want to talk about focus. Restoration and focus. Those are the two things that are going on here at the end of the Gospel of John. There's the restoration of Peter, and then there's the focus, Pete, on what you're to do. Not what he's to do, what you're to do. And these two things are needed for all disciples, both to recognize the relationship that we have with Jesus, but also to know that we need to kind of have our eyes on him and do what he has called us into. So let's start with the restoration Jesus restores his disciples. That's the point, 15, 16, and 17. This happens through the conversation of Jesus and Peter. If you look in John 21, 15 through 17, you see this back and forth. Jesus comes to Peter three times to restore him. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? It could be lots of different things that these could be pointing to, right? Like, is it more than the fish? Like, do you love me more than these fish, this profession? Do you love me more than the disciples around you love me? That could be one, you know, is your love exceeding for me in comparison to their love for me? Or, which I feel, I, I think in regard to the ministry of Jesus feels a little more natural, is do you love me more than you love these people? Do you love me more than you love them? Right? Is the love of Jesus the superior love in this relationship? 
Do you love me more than these? Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. Isn't that interesting? He said, feed my lambs. He gave him a, a command. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. And it didn't end with great. I knew it. I just needed you to know it. It actually ends with a job description for Peter. Feed my lambs. He said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved, annoyed maybe even, because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. People love to get caught up in the, the words of love here and go, do you agape me? Do you phileo me? Like they, we kind of do all those things. I don't think John gives us really any clue that any one of these statements is superior to another. I think he's stylistically using different words of love. You can look at Greek literature and even find agape used rather negatively and phileo used rather positively. So I don't think that that alone, even though that preaches really well, I don't think that alone is really what's going on uh, because, because I think it's not, the word that is used, it's the repetition of the words that are used. He asked this question three times. Three times. What's the one thing that we know about Peter by now in regard to his relationship with Jesus during his last moments? What did he do? Deny, right? He, he denied Jesus. And how many times did he deny? You know it, come on. Three times. He denied Jesus three times. Three times he was asked if he knows Jesus, and three times he said, I don't know who this man is. So Jesus came back and three times asked if Peter loved Jesus. And three times Peter says, you know I do. You know I do. You know I do. I think this was needed because restoration, we have to realize this happens between us and the Lord, is that restoration is complete. John is showing us that restoration is full and complete, that we are brought fully back into a right relationship with God through Jesus, and Peter needed that. And don't we need some of those things sometimes where we're just weak and frail, and, and it's like, well, I denied you two times, and I feel like you could forgive me for two of those, but would you forgive me for three of those? Yes. Three denials, three affirmations of love, three statements of what he is to do. Jesus' restoration is complete. And as the good shepherd, he knew what Peter needed, but we all need this. These are the people in the room, you and I, who would say about us, you don't know what I've done. And we cannot hide. Peter even knows that. That's why he's so exasperated by question number three. You know, you know I love you. You know everything. Yes, I love you. We probably have sins that we wonder about. Thoughts in our heart, maybe expressions that have even demonstrated themselves this morning addictions, anger, stuff that is just right below the surface, and we're afraid one 
false step, one move is going to just explode out and people are going to see the real us. And the great thing is, Jesus already knows the real you. And he already stands there to forgive you. and Be brought back into that right relationship. If you're not here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus, there is nothing that you have done that Jesus doesn't know. There's nothing you could do that would surprise him. But there is something that would surprise you, which is he would bring you into fellowship with God the Father through his death, burial, and resurrection. He knows in this moment what Peter needed. Peter did love Jesus. He loved Jesus, I would say, even in his denials. He wasn't like, I hate Jesus now. And I don't like, he was like, he was caught, embarrassed, and afraid to die, living in the flesh, worried about himself. And in that moment, he was a fool. And how many foolish moments do we have? And even in those foolish moments, how many times does Jesus come back? Every single time. And he didn't say, hey, could you go ahead and just run the circumference of the Sea of Galilee for me just to prove it? Could you do 15 other things? Some of us come from traditions where it's like you got to do these 45 things, and then after you do those 45 things, then maybe that will be enough for God to forgive you. Some of you don't come from those traditions, and that's just how you live, where you really are a good deeds and bad deeds kind of person, where you go, if I just put enough, if I have to do, if I did something bad, and I know it's bad, I have to do two good things in order to balance out the bad. This is, we, saw, we sometimes live by karma, where you kind of, it comes back to you, you get what you deserve, and so we just go, I better do good things, so good things come, because if I do bad things, bad things will come, and so we live this whole way of life, and we're just taught that. Why? Because that really makes life about what we've done. If I could do more good things, I should be rewarded for the good things I've done. And I should be, you know, if I do bad things, I better do good things to counteract it. And we still really do have this view of life where it's like, well, if there is an afterlife, I just hope my good outweighs the bad. It doesn't have the heart of Jesus in the middle of it. That's the heart of us. That's how we treat people. Enough good, great. Too much bad, sorry, you're out, you're dead to me. But Jesus' restoration didn't just include a right relationship, it included a task. Isn't that interesting? It didn't end with great, so we're good, which is how we love to end so many relationships. So we're good, right? Like, are we good? Have we gotten through everything that we needed to get to? Are, are we in an okay spot? Is there anything else that we need to handle right now in this moment? But he moved right to feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, whatever language that there is there. There's this task associated specifically with Peter, and Peter was seen as kind of a, uh, an apostle and a leader to the Jews. That was where a lot of his ministry took place. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, his first epistle there, he calls himself one who witnessed Christ, but also a shepherd, a fellow shepherd and overseer of God's flock, that he had this role as shepherd and caretaker of God's flock. This can get distorted to think that Peter himself was the head of the church. That's what kind of papal succession would be, is that the Pope is just the next one in line from Peter, and you can go all the way back and get to him, and that that person's always the one who's leading the church. Jesus says nothing about that. He does use Peter specifically on the day of Pentecost, doesn't he? Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he speaks about what is going on in this moment. Empowered by the Spirit, Peter declares what is going on and what should be done. 
By Acts chapter 13, much of the interaction that we have with Peter is, is minimal, and we kind of transition to Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Saul, or Paul, Saul, and Timothy, or I'm sorry, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Um, and so we have this transition that happens even in the book of Acts. I don't think Acts even kind of tips us off that Peter's going to just keep growing as this guy in the church, but he's foundational in the work of God in building the church, uniquely seen on Pentecost. But Peter does have a shepherding caretaker role in the church. And so Jesus goes right back into the task that he is supposed to do. Now, this is interesting because we've seen this multiple times already in the Gospel of John toward the end, where there is some type of relationship that is restored, but Jesus ties task or mission or commission right to it. I'll give you a few that we've gone on, gone over since Easter. Three of them, including this one. Remember what he said to Mary when Mary saw him in John chapter 20, and she grabs on. And he said, don't cling to me, for I have yet to ascend to my father, but go and tell my brothers. Do you see how in that moment she wanted to be there with him? And he said, don't do this. Go talk about it. Go tell people what had happened. That 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 relationship was not just about being beside Jesus, but doing what Jesus had asked. Go and talk about it. Go and tell them what has happened. But we saw this, I believe, when Zach preached, when Jesus comes into the locked room and he says, as the Father sends me, so I send you. We see this in the restoration of Peter, where he comes in and there's this conversation, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then go and feed my sheep. Ministry in God's world has two components that we see here. There's one, being restored rightly into a relationship with God, but then two, fulfilling the task that is in front of us. So restoration and task, and both of them are there. And this is, what, this is kind of what bothers me about playing church. Now, at Genesis, we don't want to play church. We don't want to play the church game. We don't want to just put on services. We don't want to go like, if there's money in the bank and there's people showing up, then we're good. Um, so like, that's not the end game here, but that is the end game of lots of people. That's the end game of many of our lives. Like if my family likes me and we can afford our bills, like all is well, that is a short-sighted, silly, simplistic way to live life. That discipleship includes a call to a right relationship and a command to go and declare this news. And you cannot try and isolate one from the other. And you can see this in the language of Jesus, especially as he gets to the resurrection part of his ministry, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So it has a command, it has a destination, the ends of the earth, and it has a duration, which is until he comes back. We have that. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If there is a relationship, you will be my witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, but you will go and you will declare. We have Peter and Jesus sitting right here, and Jesus is saying, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Then take care of my flock. 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 Many of us find this incomprehensible. I do at times. I find this so, it's so hard because 
I have the you don't know what I've done on one side going, I'm not worthy of the task. And I tell you what, every Sunday just about, I feel like an imposter. I felt like this in every year of seminary and in every seminary class where I'm just like, am I the only idiot here? Like, like, and I better hide it because I don't want to be the only one who doesn't know what's going on in the room. And I've told you about the people that I sit beside, and they'll, you know, we're talking about the Bible, and they go, well, clearly you know what God says in X, Y, Z verse, right? And I'm like, just, you know, tell me, just in case. I want to know you know. Because right, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I had this buddy one time, he was so good at historical knowledge, he can go, and when this happened, and this year, and that happened, and that year, and that happened, and that year, and that happened, and that year, and I'm just like, I won't take your word for it, because history dates don't stick in my brain, ever, ever. I can't figure it out. Um, that guy crashed and burned in ministry, too, like, like, so, I, so it's not just mental acumen that keeps you going. But I sat there going, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how this works. And you just start like making mistakes and keep making mistakes and keep struggling. And then the Lord just keeps showing up graciously. So, so often on the, you don't know what I've done, we don't feel worthy to step into the work of ministry because it feels like we feel like we're cheating. I, I don't want to make this. I, I mean, like, I don't even have it right yet. And you want me to train somebody? Or read something like in Titus 2. Right? Women, train younger women. Men, teach men. We see this in first, uh, first, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 2. Uh, the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. We go, I'm not, I'm not equipped to do that. I'm not able to do that. But really, it just takes knowing something somebody else doesn't. Helping them move along in the Lord. Helping them move along in the faith. Helping them understand what it means to navigate this life faithfully as a disciple. And there is no moment of arrival, is there? On this side of eternity, we're just going to keep stumbling and keep wondering if we're doing a good enough job, and the Lord's going to be there every single time. That identity as disciple includes commission to do the work that he has put before us. You can't separate these two things out. Now, with that, because I talked to a buddy of mine. I talked to a buddy of mine who, who, who loves this passage, and he loves this passage because a couple of times in ministry, he's got dinged for a pornography addiction. And he has had to sit in time out for a while. And I mean that in a good way. Like, like, like sit under discipline, instruction, counseling, care, and just kind of said, there are some things we're not going to have you do right now because you're a little disordered on this side. Because you're disordered on this side, right now we want faithfulness to look a certain way for you. And faithfulness isn't going to look like preaching. And faithfulness isn't going to look like you know, super upfront face engagement with people. Faithfulness is going to look like caring for your spouse, being sure she's gaining your trust, uh, you're gaining her trust, being sure that people in your life know what's going on, being sure that you're talking to a counselor who can help you think about why this might be going on the way that it is, staying close to the Lord, having people invest and pray for you. Like, that's what it's going to look like right now. And so I was asking him, how do you work on this idea, because he's very open with it. Like, how do, how do you, in loving this passage, how do you not feel as if you can just jump right in, jump right back in? And his comment to me was, made sense, and it sounded like a man who's humble before the Lord, realizing his own limitations. He goes, you just, like, the service might not look like you have expected, but Jesus calls all his disciples into his work. How they're working, where they're working, when they're working, those, those are all going to look different. And that's okay. But there's work to always be done. 
So what I heard in that was it's arrogant to assume that because I'm right with God, I should be able to do all X, Y, and Z things that I did previously. That's not really, right? Those are roles. Those are functions. Those aren't necessarily God-ordained. And this is why I think when you see stories of pastors who flame out and their churches try and give them some kind of discipline or restoration plan, very often they just take the easiest exit strategy they can. They go, oh, well, I'd never be able to preach here again, so I can't do that. Or I'd never be able to X, Y, and Z this ministry again, so I can't do that. Right? Like, like, because being a faithful disciple of Jesus is only doing a certain thing. And he's like, well, clearly you guys want me to do that, and so i got to go find another church. I mean, it happens. Like, there are stories. We know them where people go, oh, okay, like, I kind of ruined this flock, and they want to actually restore me to fellowship here, but I just kind of want to do the thing I want to do anyways. Right? Like, that, that's a heartless, selfish flesh-based way of leading, where it's about you doing what you want and not you doing what the Lord's put before you. Jesus had a role for Peter. And he wanted him to know that Jesus and Peter were good. We're good. You'll have a task. Peter has other failures, doesn't he? Paul has to call him out for being a fool like he has to be corrected. That's like, it doesn't mean you just, the perfection is just going to keep coming now. But what gets to happen next, and this is what happens to all of us so often if we're not focused on faithfulness, but we're just kind of focused on comparison, is I said there's the focus word, there's the restoration, there's focus, is that Jesus has to refocus Peter and kind of recalibrate what he's supposed to do. So if you look in 18 through 23, you then see what begins to happen. He says this about Peter in verse 18. You're gonna, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. John lets us know that this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Tradition holds for a pretty long time that Peter died by crucifixion. Some tradition would put, that, put him upside down, but that idea of people are going to take you and bind you, and they are going to move you to a place that you don't want to go. So when you were young, you dressed yourself and you did what you wanted. When you were old, people are going to take you to a place that you do not want to go. And then John lets us know, because perhaps Peter was already dead at the time of this writing, he said this to let him know by which way he was going to die. And then he said to Peter, what he says to every disciple, follow me, follow me. Because that's the call on the disciple's life. Wherever, Lord, however, if it ends in brutal death, and if it ends with a bunch of people singing just as I am around my bedside, I'll take either one because following you is better than me trying to map out my life. Follow me. So there's John. Remember, there's Peter and, and Jesus walking on the beach and John is kind of going after because he has to figure it out too and he's a little nosy. So he hears about his death. He hears the command, follow me. And then Peter sees John and he's like, well, what about this guy? What about this guy? What's he gonna do? How's he gonna die? So verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said, hear these words because they're for you too. If it is my will that he remain until I come, that would be his return. What is that to you? You follow me. 
John lets us know. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Like a good lawyer almost. He's like, but that's not what he said. He just said, if it is my will that he remain, what is it to you? He didn't say it is my will. He said, if it is, why would that matter to you? And the reason it matters to us so often is because we love to compare. We compare churches, we compare pastors, we compare preachers, we compare gifts. We go, well, your community group is bigger than my community group, or your D group is bigger than my D group, or people like to follow you and they like to follow me. People like to go over to your stuff. When you invite them, they come, and I invite them, they don't. Why is that? How come you seem to be doing all the things that I wanted, and I'm doing all the things that I thought were like for other people? Like, I thought, like, like we have this view of leveling up in ministry where it's like, I'm going to be like sitting at the top of the mountain, I'm going to just be telling people what to do all the time. Like, that's what I want. And honestly, I mean, this happens. I, I was with these guys in seminary. I probably was one. My friend Adam will admit it about himself. He's like, when I graduated from seminary, I was confident that I was going to be called up by Chuck Swindoll, and he was going to say, hey, Adam, like, I need a new guy. You're, you're it. He's like, and I ended up, pastoring a church of about 140 in Illinois for 14 years, and no one knows who I am. We look at people's platforms, we look at people's ministries, we look at people's churches, and we go, we do this, we all do this, we're Americans, it's all about comparing. Like, why can't I have that? Why can't I do that? That's the kind of ministry that I want. If we have that, then we are not concerned about following Jesus, we're concerned about Jesus following us. Jesus, follow me, bless me, do the things that I want. You know, kind of when I call on you, kind of give me extra power, extra strength to make this thing big. And some of us in the flesh, in our own power, our own strength, are gonna try and build churches or build ministries or build lives or build careers around the idea that what we wanna do is what God must want us to do. Without any consideration of his word, Without any consideration of the things that we do know. I mean, I, I have heard, you hear the stories of people who just go, well, I think God wants me to leave my spouse. And I'm like, what? Like, where, where do you see that? Like, like, like you say, so the point, like the post-exilic period. Like, well, you see what happened here at the end of their lives? And like, like, there was like, you know, separate from foreign wives, like that, like, whatever. I'm making up that where they point. But like, where, how do you defend that? It's like, oh, I just feel it. I just feel like it. I'm like, no, 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 no. Right? Remember Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So like, don't follow your heart. Don't trust your heart. Don't just assume that you're right because it feels good because feeling good doesn't mean accurate. Just means feels good. And those can be two totally different things. And so John is walking and Peter goes, okay, he's just gotten this idea that he's going to die somehow. It's not going to be great. What about him? Is he going to get that too? It's like my kids. The kids do this all the time. Well, hold on. He got a drink, so do I get a drink? Or he got to do this, so he went to a birthday party. Can I go to a birthday party? He, like, like it's like fairness becomes the name of the game. And Jesus just steps in and goes, you shouldn't care. It's a pretty assaulting statement by Jesus, isn't it? What is it to you if I have him thrive and you die? And we're just like, Lord, make me the thriver, please. You know, hallelujah, thrive me. What is it to you if you go to your death, led by people who don't want anything to do with you, and you're crucified, and I come back, and this guy's still alive? You follow me. You follow me. 
There isn't room in our disciple-making to include everything I want and everything God wants. You can't blend those two worlds together. Where you go, I'm just going to do all these things. I'm going to hope God blesses it, and that's going to be what I want. And if there's time, I'll be faithful to the Lord too. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. I want to say, give you permission today not to be worried about the ministry successes of others. Not to be worried about the career successes of others. Not to be worried about the family successes of others. I've told you about a dear friend of mine before, who he, uh, his wife has miscarried a lot of times. So many times that the doctors have said, no more, no more trying. Next one might kill her. No more. And this guy is, if I were just to write a list of people who would be the best dads in the world, he would be number one. I'd be one B, but he'd be number one. Number one, my kids love him. They love him. And they've probably spent, over the course of their lives, 48 hours in his presence 72, like as people who could remember it, not being held as a baby. Like that's all. It's like three nights we spent the night at his house and they've come over and had pancakes once. That's it. They love him. They love her. And they really are like parents to my kids. And it's their heart and their support and their care. And you would think, well, God, if anyone should be a parent, it should be these two. And I remember talking to him years back and he goes, it took me a long time to realize that God didn't owe me children. He doesn't owe me children. He doesn't owe me a family. But you follow me. It's that level of assault that starts to hit us. If you have no family, but many sons and daughters in Christ... What is it to you if his family's 20? Follow me. If we are caught up in comparison on mission, we will miss out on the joy of following Jesus. And it will demonstrate in our own hearts that we are not fully surrendered. So I'm, uh, I'm about a month from a milestone birthday, 30, and I'm only now, I'm only now realizing that there are like maybe two or three things that I, I'm good at for the Lord, that he's gifted me with and given me confidence about. That's not for me. Like, it's not, there aren't many. Um... Being an awesome preacher isn't one of them. Sorry, guys. You're here for that. Move along. I can give you a list of two or three other people, but that's about it. Because most guys I know aren't. They're not phenomenal preachers. It's just not their thing. They're adequate, passable, good, decent, but not phenomenal. A few people have that gift. And I I tell my class, I told them this past week, I'm like, a few people are going to be able to build their church by how they preach. It's not going to be you, and it's not going to be me. There are like five of them, and they're on the speaker circuit. The rest of us, just be faithful. 
So this is what I would encourage you to do if you have time this week, even tonight. Courtney and I tried to talk about this a little bit. Um, I had to do it for myself just a few weeks ago. I would love for you to take a little time. Pray, discuss, and ask yourself this question, Lord, what areas have you given me to tend? Those could be ministry functions, those could be stages, phases of life, but what areas have you given me to take care of? Now, if you're a husband, you already have one. If you're a father, you already have one. If you're an employee, you already, like, don't create new ones. Like, to just start with what's already there. What's already before you? Not, well, if I could do anything, what would God have me do? What's already before you? You can maybe make it something called like an I will follow list, if you want a little gimmicky title for it. There you go, an I will follow list. And what are they? There might be two, three, four things that you write down where you go, I know, I know that this is what God has put before me. And there's other things that might just be like, I'd like to maybe do those things, but I don't even really know if they're the most important. Like I have three and they're not spectacular. They're not spectacular. Like, like you're, no, one, no one's gonna have me go give a conference speech on this. Maybe they will. Maybe I'll just have to start the conference to do it. And that's what a lot of those guys do anyways. Start their own conference so you can listen to them talk about the things they care about. This one is a tandem. I can't, it could be two. I'm going to make it one. Pastor people to be disciple makers. Like, if you talk to me, like, that's going to be somewhere where we go. I'll go like, well, how are you investing in anybody? Like, if you're not investing in anybody, sorry, you're a cul-de-sac. Like, like it's, you, you will be dissatisfied with life if you think it only exists to feed your needs. And so water flows somewhere. Don't be a dead sea, right? Like, like it goes somewhere. And if you think life just exists for you, you're going to miss it from the jump. So pastor people, that's kind of my job, to be disciple makers. That's a vocational one. But I would be doing this if I were a teacher. I would be doing this if I were a salesman. This is, this is something I do. It's in me. It's been in me before I was employed to do it. It'll be in me after I'm employed to do it. Secondly, invest in ministry leaders. Like inside this church, outside this church, I was meeting with some pastors this past week, going over a buddy's sermon. You know, Lawson, who preached for me last Father's Day, like we went, I sat with Lawson, another guy, and we just listened to one of his sermons and we went through it and we found way, hey, consider this. What about this? If you did it like this, um, you know, here's, something, here's a question I have here. I love that. I live for that, right? Like, like when I go teach my students and tomorrow's my last one for the summer, like it's like going to fun. Like that's really what it is. Like we get to go and we get to hammer out ministry issues. I get to care for them, pray for them, encourage them, cheer them on, tell them they can do it, which is one of the best things to be able to do when somebody's at their wit's end. Is we know you can do it. You can do it. Like, I, like, that's one of those things that I just love. And as I get older, praise the Lord, right, because age is a gift. As I get older, I actually carry more influence in the lives of leaders, not less. And so I'm going to leverage every extra day God gives me to do that. Those of you in the room who are 60s, pushing 60s, 70s, pushing 80s, whatever it might be, if that's you this morning, you are in your most productive decades of ministry impact. The rest of us are just investing until we can cash in on that. Really, like you will have energy you didn't have in your 60s. You will have attention, you will have focus, and you will have a whole lot of experience of walking with the Lord where you can help us. And so don't try to get to retirement and then just kind of coast. But invest. You might think no one wants to hear from me, and that's just not true. 
We do. We do want to hear from you. Invest in ministry leaders a second. Thirdly, you go, where's this one, Hans? Care for my family. Like, I'm a dad. I love my kids. I love Courtney. I love being together. Joey was shocked. He texted me last night. I didn't reply. He thought I was ghosting him. I'm like, man, it's just like a couple of, I'll respond to a text message between about 5.30 a.m. and 11.30 p.m. Sunday through Thursday. Like, Friday and Saturday, you're going to think I don't exist. If you only text me on the weekend, you're going to think I'm the worst texter in the world. As whereas you're going to text me like on a Tuesday, you're going to be like, what is the deal with this guy? Why is he up right now? Um, it's because most of you work, and so the only time I can have a conversation with you in a written fashion is like at 10 p.m. when you're doing something else. Like, that's, I'll just come find you then. I can't walk over to your house because that'd be weird. So that's it. Pastor people, invest in ministry leaders, care for my family. Will God give me other tasks while that goes about? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I will take them on gladly. But what do I know is before me? Those three. What do you know is before you? So that, so that you don't have to look at somebody else and go, well, what about them? Because if you're doing what God has put before you, you know what you're not worried about? What somebody else is doing. Or what you're not doing. Because I am confident that if you're in the Lord here this morning, God has given you enough to tend to. If you don't know what that is, Start with the roles you already have. Go from there. You don't have to build up new ones for you. Well, I really want to be like a rock star. Well, probably not going to happen. Maybe it will. Maybe not. So here's what I would say. As you finish John, play your part. Play your part. Whatever part that is, play it. And I love the end of John because I think that's basically what he's saying. He has written the gospel. He has written an account of Jesus' life so that others might believe. Now listen to how this book ends. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So after the entire gospel's written and it's theologically aligned, it's beautifully written and it has pneumatology and Christology and everything in it, where does it end? Here's my two cents. If we talked about everything Jesus had did and wrote about everything that Jesus had, did, had done, we would not be able to fill the world without it bursting because there's just so much. So John doesn't end his gospel going, check this out. He's like, here's my part. Here's, here, here is an addition to declaring the goodness of Jesus. Here is an addition to talk about it. He has a, epistles as well, and he has the book of Revelation. But if he were standing with us today, he would say, man, I just did what God put before me. That was it. So what's ours? Play our part. We know some things will already exist. What has God put before us to tend to that we can continue to do until the Lord returns, which is the day we are longing for?